Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the WMIM podcast. It's been a while, and I'm sorry about that. The um, world, everything, just got to me, man. And I was having a hard time focusing, and I still am a little bit. There's some personal shit. If you're friends with me on Facebook, you know. There's also that. The state of the world is just shitty, so... I was just having a hard time focusing. I was having some really bad depression. I still am. I um, Full disclosure here. I suffer from major depression, bipolar disorder, and severe anxiety. I just got back on my meds after a year. I just haven't been taking care of myself, man. You know, I need to. I haven't been. If you're friends with me on Facebook, you know more, but I'll just say here publicly that last week, Thursday, I had a breakdown, a major breakdown, and it made me realize how bad off I am, you know? So I went and got some help, and today I picked up my meds and had a therapy session, so that was good. The therapy session was great. I really had a good talk. I really like my therapist a lot. He's a good dude. Maybe I'll bring him on the podcast one day. He's not Orlando-based. He would be fun to talk to. I mean, everybody's struggling, right? Everybody's having one bad thing after another. I'm not alone. I know that. I just, with my conditions, I get overwhelmed, and it got the best of me last week. It was pretty terrible, seriously. Sorry to make it all sad and shit right off the bat. My bad. I wasn't trying to bring everybody down right off the bat. So getting away from that and into the episode, I have this week creator, maker, owner of Roundtable Productions. This guy does so many amazing, cool things. He does these really cool little steampunk like vehicles. Like I said, he owns Roundtable Productions, which is a special effects, fabrication, scenic. They do everything over there. Man, if you guys don't know, I've had, I've talked about scenic art before on the podcast. But if you don't know, scenic art is like the movie industry, but for theme parks. So like all the special effects, all the props, all the paint jobs, all the murals. I've done murals out at Disney World, you know, like all that stuff that you see, all the visual elements, that's scenic art. Stefan runs a company that does scenic art, but he he doesn't just do scenic art. He does stuff for TV and movies and whoever needs it. If a band needs a a big skull on their on their stage, he'll make it, you know. All the things that you can imagine that would fit into that field. Yeah, that's what he does. And like I said, I've done it before, and it is so much fun. Like, you can't even imagine. Well, you probably can if you're a creative person or if you watch, like, behind the scenes on a movie or something. It's fun being paid to create cool shit for people to enjoy. I mean, it's that easy. It's so much fun. I would love to get back into it, but, you know, with everything going on, it's hard to say where anything's gonna be next week. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. Stefan's a fucking awesome guy, and I had a great time talking to him. Oh, shit. I have some new Patreons. 
patrons patrons on patreon um this week which is awesome um i would like to thank heidi wheeler john king and nancy campbell for your patronage on the podcast and if you want to be a producer of the podcast go to patreon.com slash wmind and just for a dollar you'll get a shout out and it'll help me like i said i deal with some mental issues and one of the reasons i started this podcast was to kind of remedy that a little bit instead of just being in my head all the time i wanted to get into someone else's head that's why it's called w mind you know i'm recording the thoughts and the ideas of someone else man for you guys someone asked me how can they help me with everything because i am in need of some help and i said oh yeah i almost forgot i started a website for the podcast um if you go to www.dubyamind.com you'll find everything there full episodes a blog um information about everything so check it out it's d-u-b-y-a-m-i-n-d.com and um yeah bookmark it check back regularly i might add my art on there i probably should add my art on there and i had a lot of fun making it so yeah go that's a good reason right there go check it out because i had fun making it so uh yeah let's get back to it like i said i felt so much better the last couple days than i did a week ago so i said hey i'm gonna get on and post a new episode so here it is my episode with creator maker special effects guru super nice guy really informative guy loves to talk give it up for stefan price I think the first time we ever met was in Thornton Park. I think your brother had an art show or something there. Do you remember that? Yes. Uh, my brother, Eric. Yeah. He, he lives in Thornton Park. And yeah. he, so yeah, he is, he has occasionally put his art out. And uh, is that the first time we met? Man, that I was think a while so. ago. It was a while ago. Because I did the, the second Thursday thing like every month for like a year and a half. And I remember seeing some laser cut or laser printed stuff in there. And I think, yes. I think you were there supporting your brother because he had used your laser thing or yep. something. Yep. He'd use, he uses my laser to make, to make yeah. his stuff. Yeah, that's and he really, really cool. got into it and, uh, and really kind of ran with the laser in some interesting directions. Do you have any other siblings? I have I have two brother two younger oh, brothers. Cool. cool. One is Eric, uh, who, like you said, lives in Thornton Park and does uh, artwork and uses my laser. The other one lives on the other side of the country in um, in Portland, and he does uh, web design and web managing, and uh, he works for some like fairly big companies. He was he was uh, doing IT and web stuff for Autodesk until just recently. Oh wow. 
Um, and uh, and then now, I can't remember the name of the company he's working for, but he just uh, switched from working at Autodesk to being a, a some sort of a consultant position to kind of liaison between the the clients and the and the tech people because yeah. he can speak a little, he can speak very good tech, but he also is kind of like good at communicating with people. So oh, that's they, cool. th- This company hired him as a liaison to kind of like bridge the gap between the the tech and the non-tech people <laughs> the that's right and the left cool. brains um so you're a family of creative people that's pretty for cool. sure yeah. for sure it it's interesting my dad uh my dad always kind of pushed us to um you know keep sort of thinking and experimenting and, and working on all kinds of weird projects my dad was never a sports guy and he wasn't a car guy he was a go in the shop and work with tools and rebuild things and take things apart and build something you need kind of guy. And uh, so he kind of instilled all of us with this sort of makery kind of spirit. And, That's uh, awesome. Did he work in in a field of like... No, no, that? not... A, he's a doctor. Um, oh, so okay. Just recently, he finally he finally retired just, just last oh, wow. year. He, he kind of been weaning himself off for the last, yeah. last decade almost, really. But he kind of fully retired. And now, now he's got his shop where he makes knives and makes projects and he bought himself uh, as a retirement kind of present, a, a big CNC milling machine so he can oh, make man. whatever he wants. And so he's a kind of a full-time maker now. He's living the life, man. That's the life like to, to like build up to retiring and then doing what you love after you, after you retire. That's like a great life. I think it's, it's definitely, it's definitely, uh, uh, an, an aspiration for, for some, for sure. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, my dad, he, he gets to just kind of work on projects around his workshop now. That's amazing. I was looking at your, your bio and it mentions, so you went to university of central Florida. Yes. I, uh, I went to UCF, um, I transferred from Valencia, uh, was going to Valencia to get a film degree because they have a really great and kind of renowned film program. Mm. Um, they have a good for, art Which program is pretty too. impressive for, for a community college. Yeah. Uh, they actually were well-known. Steven Spielberg had visited and kind of complimented them. I mean, they, they, they were kind of doing some interesting kind of things with their program. And uh, I was going there trying to get the film uh, degree from there and before going on to four-year university somewhere else. Right. And um, I ended up just uh, getting, you know, getting my AA and transferring to UCF. But the film program at UCF didn't really have the same kind of hands-on kind of quality. Mm. And I was already working in the film industry doing props and special effects. Right. So I switched to mechanical engineering, which I thought would be kind of more... Uh, applicable to the the kind of projects and the kind of things I wanted to do, and all of those classes I took in lighting and stagecraft and sound design and uh, all transferred in to UCF as theater credits. So I went to the theater department and said, "Hey, could <laughs> I get a minor?" And they said, "You know, with everything you've got and everything you'll have to take, one more semester and you'd have a major oh, that's because awesome. you've got you've got so many credits already, and you're going to have to take all of the basic stuff." And, which is all the same stuff you need to get your minor or to get your major. Uh, so they kind of talked me into it. And so I, uh, I applied and, and I was double majoring at UCF for my entire career there. So it took me, I, I came in with an AA, but I think it took me like almost four years to finish because I was double majoring in mechanical engineering and theater. Oh, wow. And so I was like, 
with the with the theater department, I was that nerdy math engineer kid. Right. And then with the engineering department, I was that weird extroverted theater guy. <laughs> and I was kind of kind of had a, a leg in both worlds and didn't really fit into either come 100 percent. But, uh, you know, it was it was it was fun. It was exhausting. I was taking 18 to 21 credit hours a semester for four years. It was wow. it was work. Um, That's a lot of work. And I was very fortunate because, again, my parents were very supportive of, of my career choice, and so they said, "Hey, look, we we, you know, we worked really hard to, you know, very fortunately have enough to send you to, to college and not have to worry about you, you know, how are we going to pay for it?" So they said, "Your job is to go to school, and work on any projects or take on any job that you want." that will be applicable to your career, you know, something that's going to help you, whether it's, you know, going in freelance, I, you know, I freelanced as a stage, stage crew person. I worked the odd production here and there when people would call me and, and I was very fortunate not to have to like worry about like getting a job, you know, uh, at any kind of other place. So right. that way just focus on getting, getting good, as good grades as I could. And then working projects that were going to, you know, keep moving me in the direction of doing the props and special effects that I wanted to do. That's really awesome that, uh, your parents were like that. Like, yeah, it was, it was really great. Cool. It, was, it was a combination of, of, you know, being very privileged to have parents that could have, you know, that could afford it. And also right. that were supportive enough to say, you know, Hey, this is what you want to do. Exactly. Well, my dad's very, very businesslike like that. He's like, he's okay with you wanting to do something kind of, you know, uh, not like become a, a doctor or a lawyer. He was fine with all of us to choose what we wanted as so long as we, you know, we were like, okay, this is, this is a business and this is how I'm going to, right. uh, you know, pursue it and, and, you know, have a career, whether it's working for somebody else or, you know, pursuing, you know, our own entrepreneurial kind of direction. He's very, very kind of pushed, pushed us to be driven in, in a direction of that, uh, it has its it has its successful points and it had its you know yeah. downsides like anything else. Right. But uh, that's awesome. Yeah, man. Was, it was really fortunate though. My parents are really supportive of the art and always have been, but like financially, they could never send me to um, college or anything. So um, I started going to school for art, or I have enrolled in art right after high school and then I decided that I couldn't make it on my own so I didn't do it until now but I'm not even going to school for art now so <laughs> but at well, least but you're I'm, going I'm to trying. school for a creative you know a creative yeah, endeavor exactly um you know I, the thing that that I very fortunately learned from college you know is that uh or going to any kind of educational thing and I tell this to to people that are going in that you're only going to get out what you put into it. Right. So, and, and, and these days there is so much information and access to, to knowledge about what you want to learn that just didn't exist, you know, when right. I was Absolutely. getting ready to go to school. Like they're just, I mean, I scoured every library, every resource I could for information on what I wanted to do. And I, you know, like, you know, I own all, like, set most of the books that were written about props and special effects. Mm -hmm. Like I own them, you know, like yeah. th that's what existed and, or, you know, I found them in 
you know, extracted what information I could. And, and now you want to learn anything, whether it's, you know, building props or sound design or how to draw, how to use Photoshop. I mean, there is just an avalanche of information and at every level of like starter to intermediate to master class and for, for zero dollars to just a few, I mean like pennies compared to what I paid for college, you can learn anything. And you know, I can tell you, I I put that college degree on my, my resume and, and, and it definitely has a prestige factor, but that's, in my personal opinion, that's, that's really all that a, a college degree in the end is it, it's, it's a it's a piece of paper you hang on your wall yeah. and and in certain industries if i wanted to be a professional engineer if i wanted to go work for an engineering firm it would absolutely be required for right. me to, to have not just that but probably a masters and a, be certified and things like that but um, but there's so many avenues these days that you don't you don't need that piece of paper um, hanging on your wall if, if yeah. you have the information and the knowledge. I think a lot of times it's like a snapshot for the person who might be hiring you. To, for sure. Like it's a, it's like, okay, education. Okay, they do have more education. Like a lot of times they don't even look at it or go into it too deep. They just look at it to see what kind of information you have. You know, it's mostly just tell- for them. I see a lot of, you know, having a company, a lot of artists send me resumes, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so I I get a couple of resumes, you know, just kind of randomly sent to me all the time and I always try to write back and a lot of, uh, a lot of them are for, you know, artists that are, that are young, that are kind of, you know, get just at this first stage of kind of paying their dues as it's, you know, you're, you're kind of known, you're kind of just getting out there and trying to find ways to build your resume. And I, I see the biggest thing I see with people is they put in all this information that they think checks a box mm-hmm. that that they think you know uh, an employer will want to see and and I always tell people uh, when I see that I try to write back and tell them that you know write the resume for the job you want yes. I, I don't care I don't care that you know like if you know, like a lot of people will put work experience. They're trying to apply to me to be an artist, you know, working at my company and they'll put, uh, that they work at, you know, uh, they work at the gap and they got employee of the month. (laughs) And that's, that's not irrelevant information. That's good. But how is that relevant to me? I mean, that tells me you had a job and, and you showed up on time. So, you know, that could be useful, but that's not the top thing. I'd rather know as an artist, that you built a project at a paper mache for the school play in, in high school uh, and it turned out really well or you learned, you know, uh, you made some mistakes and you learned some things. Right. Like, like if that's the only thing that you have in, that you think you've ever done, put that at the top of your resume before you tell me that you worked at, you know, a clothing store because, you know, like where do you, do you want to work? Do you want to like, you know, organize the stuff on the, on the back room of my shelves or do you want to be making stuff and sculpting and painting and things like that? You know, put that at top of your list, even if you think it's not. And and that's the kind of difference, you know, like someone might think like, well, I don't have a college degree. I just, you know, took a correspondence course online in, in painting, you know, through like a, you know, lynda.com or, or the Stan Winston school online or, or one of those kind of online school or just watch, I just watch a million hours of YouTube videos. Right. Tell me that. I mean, that's a whole new world that, that, you know, is, is a new thing, but just tell me you've watched a million hours of YouTube videos on Photoshop rather than, you know, 
tell me that you, you know, uh, worked a summer job. Not, not that those jobs yeah. aren't important. That's good. That's what you did to pay the bills. But if, if you're trying to apply to be an artist, tell me how you're an artist and tell me where your passion is and focuses on that. You know, if you want to work right. at, if you want to go work at, you know, get apply for a manager at a clothing store, don't tell them that you made a paper mache, you know, elephant for the school play. Tell them you worked at, you know, another clothing store. That's, you know, you write the resume for the job you want to apply for. I've heard that before. That's cool that you say that because I've heard write the resume for the job that you want. That's pretty cool um, that someone who is like like working in the field that someone would be sending a resume for would be saying that because a lot of times you hear these things on like a TED talk or something like that and it's like does it really apply but yeah in this case you're right it does apply <laughs> I like that it absolutely does I mean I like I said I've, I've read a lot of resumes um uh and uh and I've, you know, I've hired people that, that wrote bad resumes to me before because they sent me a, you know, portfolio or they, they put something in their resume that caught my attention because I've learned to kind of sift through some of them. Um, gotcha. But I, but I always tell people, I said, like, even, even after, like, you're not going to work for me forever. So here's the, like, I always tell, I, I, for, you know, it's my two cents is my opinion. Right. I'm not a resume writing expert. I, I, I can't vouch that anyone that's ever ma taken my advice has ever gotten a job. I don't know, but I always, you know, say, Hey, look, this is my two cents. Take it for what you will. But, you know, uh, if I'm, if I was gonna, you know, be more kind of, uh, discretionary in the kind of, you know, who I'm going to give my attention to as far as resumes, this is what I, this is what I'm looking for. So, uh, you know, to help kind of weed through the, the information, you know, just give me the information. Cause basically it's, it's saying that like that just give the person that's going to read this the information that is pertinent to what they're interested in. Right. And you know, that's awesome. With Roundtable Productions, um you guys are a props and special effects and all kinds of stuff, right? Like we do we do props, prop sets, special effects and we really focus on kind of unique uh, custom fabrication projects. Okay. So things that, that require uh, a multitude of, of different kind of techniques and materials to solve the problem. So sometimes it's static things. Sometimes it's things that move. Oh, okay. Um, so we, we build things that, that require, you know, kind of a, a different approach to, to solve these kind of problems. And, and it incorporates traditional techniques like sculpting and molding and woodwork and, and metalwork, and then we incorporate laser cutters and CNC machines, 3D printers, of course. Um, they, uh, we were really an early adopter of, of 3D printing, and I spent a lot of money buying very expensive machines before there were any other, any other options. Oh, wow. uh, because I really saw 3D printing as an asset to what we did, and they were really focusing more on engineering firms at the time even though there were some you know props and special effects companies out there that were starting to use them right um i kind of took a an early leap uh because we're a small company and the larger companies didn't didn't have anybody doing that in the area and uh so i was like well i i'm, I'm a mechanical engineer and you know i know how to 3d model and i can really see how you know this will solve a lot of problems and uh create 
create you know potential solutions for those problems uh, when it comes to creating complex geometries and doing it faster and faster, you know, which uh, there's always kind of tighter and tighter deadlines, it feels like. That's awesome. So, uh, you know, 3D printing kind of skips some of the steps. Yeah. And um, one, of our, one of our earliest jobs was uh, with, when I read after about the 3D printer is there was a, a large uh, scenic company that was doing a job for Disney and they were doing a huge display, but there was this one little detail of these drawer pulls that had to be custom made mm. uh, for an exhibit out at Epcot at Innoventions. And they didn't have anybody in, in, in the house that really wanted to take it on, I guess, because they said, oh, this is going to take like a week to make the part, and then we'll have to mold it, and then we'll have to start casting out all the kind of 40 or 50 or 100 casts we need send it over to this other company and they sent it over to them. They had a CNC machine and they said, Oh, it'll take us like probably three days to make this part. And then we can give it back to you guys. And then you guys will have to make the mold. And they said, well, right. why don't you take it over to Stefan? Cause we were sharing a space in the same building. Um, I had my shop in the back of this warehouse. They were on up in the front and they said, you should take it back to Stefan. And they brought it over to me. And I, I looked at the part and I said, I could, I could print this out in four hours. I could be making the mold tonight. I'll have it done by tomorrow evening, and I could have all the cast done to you by the end of the week. And they were like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And they were like, "You, you got the job." This is um, this is what what the benefit of having a three D printer is. <laughs> yeah, I bet uh, you. I bet you that company was like, "We need to get a three D printer after that." <laughs> I mean, it definitely. You know, like there's definitely an, a kind of an arms race that you know once a, a a piece of equipment, you know, proves itself to be a good return on investment and, you know, the cost of it kind of comes down and the knowledge of how to use it goes up. It, it, you know, there's a, there's a point where, you know, I'm no longer a novelty. Of course, everybody, right. you know, you know, everybody in the maker community practically has a 3D printer these days and the bigger companies definitely have bigger and bigger, more expensive 3D printers. So, yeah, uh, I, I worked at Bungalow for a little while and Right before I left, they were getting like a giant 3D printer, like a ten the mass foot, of like it. ten yeah. foot. They so. they bought a mass of it, uh, and I tell you, they that company they they reached out to me, and I I flew out to Colorado to uh, the sales center to take a look at it, and I was like, I I, I was in, instantly in love. I was like, this 3D <laughs> printer is going to change the industry. Yeah. It's going to change a lot of things. Right. Um. And and people. A lot of people don't even realize they were like trying to sell it to sign companies and mm, and sell it to scenic companies to be able to make 3D stuff. And I'm like, this is going to change the way things are bought, right? Um, because it it it's I mean, 3D printing isn't new, but right. it has a, a a unique kind of material aspect to it that's been being you know kind of honed in better and better, and it's been going that way. And to be able to print massive, you know, massive objects with little to no support material out of a material that can cure as fast as that can. And so you're able to, you know, print an object the size of a human being in a few hours where on a mm -hmm. standard FDM printer, it would take, it would take you weeks to, if, if you had a single 3d printer, it would take you weeks right. to, to create something, you know, uh, as big as what that thing could do. And if you had a, a fleet of 3d printers, it'd still take you a week and it still wouldn't be as strong, and you'd still have to assemble it, and that thing can just do things. It doesn't have the fine precision, uh, like the, the really fine line detail and small feature ability of, of smaller 3D printers, but it could print, you know, like, I mean, it's going to change. If you get in a car accident 
why would a company store every type of bumper for every type of car out there if they had one of these, the next generation, not this printer isn't quite there yet, Mm -hmm. but the next generation of this printer could be to the point where they could come in, type in the model, make a model of your car and they'll be able to print out, you know, a bumper that's so cool. Uh, off your car in a day, you know, get it all sanded, cleaned up and, and painted rather than some factory has to churn out, you know, hundreds and hundreds of extra parts, thousands of extra parts to be distributed all across the country to be sitting around on a shelf till somebody maybe with that make a model car gets in a car accident and needs a new bumper. Mm-hmm. It, it, it doesn't make sense as a supply flow anymore. Right. Oh, um, so these, these kind awesome. of massive 3D printers that can print with the speed and and strength the material that that printer can do, the massive it printer, that is the that is the the sign of uh, of major new things to come uh, when it comes to you know how we how we interact with the products and product distribution. That's because now cool. you're just shipping around raw materials rather than a million finished objects that have to sit around and be the right, you know, shape and color and size and everything. And, and like storage of, of those things. Like there's so many things that go into it. Warehouse space just for all of that. Yeah. There's so much that goes into it. It's pretty crazy. So so 3d printed cars and 3d printed car parts. I mean, this is kind of the, the, the promise of a lot of futurists have been making, you know, coming to life. Uh, Sid Mead and and some other the futurists that I I've listened to out there have been talking about these sort of centralized hubs of manufacturing in cities rather than oh yeah right some factory churning out you know a million bicycles and every bicycle has to be a different size for a different age and a different style and a different person. I mean, imagine if you just you had a you know a, a, a an assembly line of, of parts and you right. sent out the parts and you'd say, Oh, I want a bike for a, a male who, you know, I'm, I'm a male who's six foot tall and I, I want to do, you know, street biking and, you know, riding around the trail. Okay. Well here, let's type that in in the machine and just assemble the, the parts and you have a lot of parts that are standard. I mean, you know, the same thing's going to be done for cars and all kinds of things. Factories will still be needed to do things like make, you know, some of the raw parts, make screws and nuts and bolts. It makes more sense to make in mass than to. Oh yeah, try that's to- true. Um, so it's not going to take away factories. It's just going to change. The focus of factories is going to be on those ones that make circuit boards and screws and nuts and bolts and you know aluminum extrusions and things like that. And making making actual final products, I think, is going to reduce as the 3D printers Im- improve. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Um, and that's a good thing. I mean, that's great. That means less waste. I mean, think of all the car bumpers that, like I just mentioned, that are sitting around in a factory that are just going to get thrown in the trash, you know, in a, in a true, landfill. Yeah. You know, are the they able to that don't sell, you know, because that particular, you know, color of of pink bike that's you know SpongeBob SquarePants goes out of fashion <laughs> and they don't sell them all. Well, they're just going to throw them in the landfill. That's true. You know, are they able to recycle taste? Are they able to recycle those materials, the 3D printed materials? There, there is a, there is improved recycling for 3D printed materials and and reuse, you know, being able to melt them down and turn them back into new things. That's really cool. That makes sense. And it's like, I don't know, like that's one of the things that would make or break something like that. I think is like 
somebody that would be investing into it be like, but I'm stuck with this thing. Well, you can melt it down and reuse it and rebuild with it. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll keep using it then. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean? It's, it's going to be a better, I mean, and think of how much, how much, I mean, there's a, there's a kind of an economy of scale, you know, when you want to make a million bicycles, of course the, the per unit price of a bicycle gets cheaper theoretically to a certain point. But think of how much cost is built into buying a bicycle uh, that goes to paying for – you have to pay for all the bikes that never get sold. You know, right. like the manufacturer has to make a certain amount of money, you know, to like cover the fact that they know that 50% of their bicycles are never going to get sold. And think of all the retailers that spend all this – waste all this money, the consumer that has to pay all this money. And there's so much economic waste as well as material waste that goes into – uh, you know, the consumer goods, right. Uh, that, that will be, you know, stripped out of the system and made more efficient by direct manufacturing, you know, on demand manufacturing through, you know, all these kind of digital fabrication improvements, CNC machines and 3d printers and laser cutters, being able to cut two shape, two size, two style on the spot, you know, um, it's just, I mean, people are getting more and more used to it. Instead of going to, you know, retail stores, they order more and more stuff on Amazon. So we're used to waiting a day or two to get the yeah. things we want rather than that instant gratification of going to the store and that thing you want is in stock right there in front of you. Uh, you know, so as we kind of have this paradigm shift of expectation of the way we shop, people grow more and more accustomed to, well, I want this bicycle or this car or this, you know, this consumer product and, I just got to wait two days for them to custom manufacture it specifically for me and send it to my house or go pick it up at the store. That's true. Um, so Maker Faire has a thing coming up very soon, and you're involved with Maker Faire, aren't you? Like, how are you involved with them? So I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of Maker Faire, and um, I also uh, participate in the, the Orlando Maker Faire every year since uh since its first year and um and i try to help and support them as much as possible i tend to get involved when they get going in the in the early stages of planning the next year there's an amazing team of people that do run the maker fair orlando um and i'm my schedule usually precludes me from uh being too active as a as a member but i i get involved in in different ways and helping them promote um I, i like to uh to go out and try to, you know, be a, a kind of a mouthpiece, a, an evangelist for Maker Faire in general year round. I take some of the projects that I've built to special events. I talk about it. I do a lot of uh, online classes with um, with schools uh, talking oh, about cool. STEM careers, and I'm always using that as a platform to talk about Maker Faire. A- anytime I have a chance to talk about Maker Faire to somebody, uh, you know, I will I will get out that soapbox and I will start. Um, <laughs> start talking about how great an organization uh, and how great a, a, a program it is, you know, for our community to it have really is. this it's... kind of showcase of, of people making things and understand that, that making isn't just like 3D printers and CNC machines, that it's people who knit, it's people who make music, it's people who write code, it's people who solder. Um, so people who make music and, and, and art is included in the the making people who bake and make chocolates and all that, you know, anything that you yeah. make. Well, Maker Fair Orlando is our local Maker Fair. Maker Fair is a brand 
that was started as a single event out in California run by okay. Make Magazine. And those those were the, the first the first Maker Fair was out in California run by Make Magazine. And that grew into a larger event. And then they franchise out the Maker Fair brands to create local Maker Fairs worldwide. So there's a Maker Fair Kansas City, there's a Maker Fair Houston, there's a Maker Fair Miami, there's a Maker Fair Tampa, there's a Maker Fair Jacksonville, there's Maker Fair New York, there's Maker Fair Singapore and Berlin and um, I mean, they're they're global. And That's what amazing. they are is they're local community organized events that have sort of licensed the brand. And the difference is that the brand, unlike, say, a McDonald's franchise, is not focused really on maximum profits, but it's about sort of maintaining the kind of core uh, kind of organizational structure of, of how the Maker Faires organize, organized, having them be advertised. I, I, they do pay a, a small stipend back to Maker Faire, the, the main hub to... Uh, to help, you know, help their kind of administrative costs of putting up the website and advertising all the different maker fairs and, you know, and there's some, some other things, but, but really maker fair, you know, in general, any of the maker fairs are, are not about, you know, creating a commercial enterprise where you're going to make maximum profits off of ticket sales. They're, they, they give away so many tickets. I know maker fair Orlando gives away hundreds and hundreds of tickets to schools and teachers and, uh, just so many different organizations. That's great. And uh, and and when you sign up to get a booth at Maker Fair, if you're an artist or a maker that is exhibiting, it's 100% free, unless you're there to sell a product. So if you're there mm. to sell your art or sell your creation, sell your product, then you pay a stipend uh, to pay for the booth, um, and and help support the organization. And it's really small for a two-day event. Maker Fair Orlando for the last couple of years has been $100 for a booth for a two-day event with as many people as they draw. Right. If you go to any other convention, that is crazy cheap price. Yeah, uh, that is. But but if you're there to promote your, you know, to show off your project, something you built for fun, uh, you can get a, a table for free. And, and most of the tables at Maker Fair are that. So they're not there to try to extract value out of the community. They're there to build and provide. Makerfair.com is a great place to start. Yeah. I've been watching a lot of, um, I guess it's a place to start um, a lot of the tested videos. And those are really interesting. Like, I don't know, like, I, I got to like go a little deeper because I'm, I'm just interested in what he's doing there more than like who he is and all that stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like, Oh yeah, the tested. I mean, I'm I'm a subscription subscribing member to tested.com uh, and they've got some great content, but they put, you know, I'd say probably 90% of their content is out there for free. Oh, okay. Sometimes they just the members will get it, you know, a day or two ahead of time. Gotcha. There's a few member only exclusive things, but there there are pretty few and far between. If you want to partake of, you know, what tested.com has to offer, most of it is out there. Uh, eventually, and uh, they've got a really awesome team of people, and of yeah. course, headed up by Adam Savage, uh, who's a really prolific maker. And um, being a you know a maker celebrity, he gets to kind of be a champion for the maker movement. Oh yeah, for sure. Test.com's you know really really great in the content they create. One thing that I like about 
him is how much of a fan he is of the things that he's doing as we are. You know what I'm saying? That's, yeah, he's got a real passion, you know, yeah. for the things. He's he's a he's a true nerd. Uh, and he comes by it very honestly. Yeah, because um, like most people only really know him as that television personality. So there's a lot more to it than that. <laughs> like there's a lot more to him than that. Yeah, and there's a lot more, you know, to to people behind, you know, behind the the just kind of personalities that we see on TV. And it was funny. I met him. He he was doing a touring show, and he came to Orlando. And the the Maker Fair Orlando people um, are are very involved in the larger maker movement nationally, and um, so they organized an event to get together a lot of people, business leaders and education leaders and civic leaders mm-hmm. from the community to have kind of a meeting to talk about how can we lean into the maker movement happening in Orlando and make Central Florida at large a more kind of uh, fertile ground for creativity and entrepreneurship around making and around education and, and kind of promoting Central Florida as, you know, a place where people want to come and stay and, and create things. Right. Because uh, there's so much culture going on here. And, and the outside world kind of when they think of Orlando and Central Florida, they think of the theme parks. Right. Um, and, and yet there's so much more going on. And so we had a meeting to kind of talk about it and in a, a kind of a way to get some different mindsets in the room together. And we took advantage of the fact that Adam Savage was being in, in, at a show in town. And we had a meeting at the, the downtown library and the Maker Faire people organized for Adam Savage to come oh, wow, and, that's and cool. be a part of the conversation since he's so much uh, more involved on a national scale, traveling around, you know, the country with his show, talking to different kind of makers and city leaders and things like that and community organizations. And um, so I I got a chance to meet him uh, before the meeting started. And I walked up to him and all the other makers were all kind of eating their sandwiches. Lunch was provided and they were sitting (laughs) over at a table all like, oh, oh, Adam Savage walked in the room. And it was like super kind of, you know, like they, nobody wanted to approach him or anything like that. And I was like, well, I'm not going to be shy. And <laughs> so the moment that it, it felt, you know, socially acceptable for me to go up and interrupt the conversation where uh, um, one of the organizers had, you know, was kind of welcoming him, but had to rush off. I was like, well, I'll take over from here. Thanks. I'll, and uh, I said, I said, you know, there's, it's so funny because it's the first time you and I have ever been in the same room together. And yet, Oddly, I feel like I know almost everything about your life because I've watched, you know, probably 300 hours of video of you talking about everything from your childhood to your early career to, you know, uh, your current career. And yet, you know, like I've never ever been shared the same space with you before. Does that happen to you a lot? Because it's really weird from this side of the equation to know somebody so well that I've never met before till right now. So uh, yeah. that that was my icebreaker with Adam Savage because that's, I, cool. that's how I felt. That was like my honest reaction was, wow, I mean, I've met celebrities before, but they're, you know, like an actor that was in a movie or a director or something like that. And, you know, you've seen them in a movie, but playing a character or maybe you've seen a behind the scenes interview once or twice. But, you know, Adam puts out, you know, just gobs and gobs of, of personal information about everything from his thought process to you know how he organizes his tools to you know the types of food he likes and ways he cooks and the projects he That's works so on cool. and 
you know, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's weird to, to know so much about a person. It, yeah. it, you know, it's a weird age. It's like, you know, if you knew that much about a person you never met before, you know, in a previous age where there wasn't the internet, that would be very unusual. You know, you'd, you'd be oh, like, yeah, right. Whoa, that guy's, you know, guy's obsessed with this person or something. But now we all know so much about so many people on YouTube because they, you know, openly share so much of themselves. So it's, it was, it was uh, a little surreal to meet a celebrity that didn't feel like a celebrity to me. Felt like, you know, somebody I've known for a long time. That's so cool. Well, like, Orlando is definitely a great place to uh, have something like that because of the um, amount of uh, scenic companies that are here and the amount of work that they're doing, you know, like, yeah, I, there's I a read lot an of article. opportunity there. I wish I, I wish I had this article in my hip pocket, but it was something, it was years ago I had mm -hmm. seen, someone wrote an article um, in, in, I can't remember where it was, I wish I could. Uh, because I would I would scour and get this, but I saw that they said that there were more artists per capita in Central Florida than anywhere else in the country. Hmm. And you know, you know, if you think of like places that artists tend to go and congregate these days, you know, places like New York and and San Francisco, Los Angeles, uh, you know, Portland and and Austin are kind of hubs of activity for different things right now. Um, but Orlando, like you say, it's got so many scenic companies on top of all of the performers, dancers, musicians, you know, various types of artists that work at all the theme parks, right? Uh, as well as the normal amount of artists and painters and makers and, you know, musicians that are just in any kind of large metropolitan community. You know, we, we have a, a, just a amazing wealth of, of culture here. Right. It's pretty amazing. Like... I mean, I, whenever someone asks me about being a scenic artist, it's almost like being a prop maker on a movie. You know, it's pretty much the same thing. Really. It's, it's, it's the same job. It's the same yeah. job. Yeah. So like, I, you know, the, the reason I started out in the film industry and I kind of transitioned into being a scenic artist for theme parks because, you know, you get to build all the same stuff for the movies but the difference is that it has to hold up right to right. a to a level that just m movies are never held to as far as a, a build you know durability and, and standard of of materials like you can build something in a movie that's made out of like paper mache and and held together with you know bubble gum uh, we used to joke <laughs> we used to joke in the in the film industry everything was bubble gum and shoestring um and it's going to be back in the background out of focus for like 10 seconds. And then they're going to, you know, go, okay, cut now into the next scene. And, uh, but at the theme parks, it's got to hold up from five inches as well as it does from 50 feet. And right. it's got to be out in the rain and the weather. And it's got to have a thousand, you know, little kids a day are going to climb on top of it, whatever it is. And people are going to stare and scrutinize it. And right. so it's got to be on point. For sure. I remember when we were doing, um, the, uh, what was it at bungalow when we were doing the the uh, gate for cinderella's castle we used floor mastic for the texture of the stones because that stuff is known for holding up you know what i yeah. mean yeah so yeah it's cool like like 
it's not it doesn't say anywhere on there use this for this you know what i'm saying but, yeah oh yeah we you know there the number of times you go into like any kind of a a, a store like like a hardware store or you know other kind of like you know material supply stores and you buy something like mastic and they're like why are you buying so much of this stuff uh you know like do you know how to do you need a floor scraper and a tile thing setter and i'm like no no no, i'm not using it for that right right it's so funny <laughs> i i and they're, they're, they're give, people give you weird looks sometimes when you tell them like oh i'm building a you know a giant monster or i'm building a you know gates for cinderella's castle and they're like yeah. they're totally confused they're probably that. thinking you're doing it like as a hobby or for yourself or something right you know? But, um, yeah, I went to the Home Depot and I bought like 12, three gallon things of mastic. And they're like, they're like, what's the PO? And I was like, Cinderella's castle. And they're like, what? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I was like, I was there from, from taking the reference photos to installing it. Like I was like that guy who was there for the whole, the the whole whole job. It was me. Well, and- that's uh, just we just did uh, a we just did a film shoot for the WWE. Yeah. You know, this this um, graveyard uh, battle scene, and you know I was going to down to Lowe's, and yeah, same thing. They were asking me like, oh, what's the P- what's the PO number on this job? And I said WWE, and you know, and they they're used to people just you know yelling out random letters right. and. One of the guys, uh, the the clerks that was at the desk was like, oh, like the wrestling, ah, ha, ha, ha. And I'm like, oh, yeah, no, like the wrestling. And he's like, what? He's like, yeah, yeah, we're building this thing. And That's so funny. He thought I was, jo- he thought I was joking at first. And he yeah. was like, no, 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 we're, this is, all this wood is going to be a ramp so the undertaker can drive his motorcycle and not, you know, hit a bump. And they're like, what? Wait, I was joking. I was like, well, I'm serious. <laughs> that, yeah, that happens. Like when we were working on Incredibles, we had to go buy a bunch of stuff for for Incredibles and the PO was like they were like what is it and we're like Incredibles and they're like what <laughs> <laughs> and it's like no we're we're actually like building all the props and everything for Incredibles and they're like oh wow that's cool like people know these things and people know about these things but they don't realize that we're making a movie experience here in Orlando without even making the movie you know yes like like I walked into, I walked into Diagon Alley and I got emotional because I was. Oh. I didn't work on it. Like it, it was finished, next level. Yeah, I, it finished right before I started, but um, I was working out there painting live at one of the gift shops there, and um, so I got to go in there, like, right before it opened, and I was like, man, imagine this came out of someone's brain and then all these people worked on it and made it into a real thing that you can stand in. It's pretty amazing. Right. I mean, could you imagine like having a dream and going like, wow, that dream felt so vivid. And then, yeah. And then years later, thousands yeah. of, of artists and craftsmen and construction workers all get together and make it so immersive that you can walk into it and not even remember that you're, it's you know, that there's an outside world. I think Jason Lee told me that when the first Harry Potter opened, the one of the guys, the art director or something from the movies, wept when he went there. Oh, uh, I, I like, believe That's it. Pretty I mean, cool. I I came home. I, we were doing some custom props mm-hmm. um, for window displays and stuff like that. So uh, 
I had to go out there and measure some things and, and I got to see, you know, the walls going in and the, the ground was still all dirt and tractors were rolling through <laughs> there. And I came home and I told my wife, I was like, I've never been so excited for any pro- to see oh, the cool. finished, like to actually attend as a guest, anything I've ever worked on as much as I'm excited about Diagon Alley uh, until I worked on Star Wars. But uh, like Diagon Alley was, I was looking around and I was like, this is going to be amazing. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Hogsmeade, the first Harry Potter area was, you know, beautiful and it's right. fantastic. Um, and it's, it's definitely a special creation as far as theme attractions go, but Diagon Alley took it to the next level that, that has I think surpassed so. my, my expectations now of, of what, you know, a themed immersive environment you know, could be, uh, or should be in a theme park. And it's, it's changing the way people are doing things. Yeah. Um, I was, my last scenic job was at NASA working on, um, Nintendo land for Japan and we were building, we were building the, they call them smash blocks, the blocks Mm -hmm. that he smashes. Oh yeah. Mario smashes. And my job was to, uh, work in the fabrication of the blocks and like cutting out and, putting them together basically so they can put all the electronics in them. And one of the cool things that they were doing was the question marks, you could push on them and they would do things. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it was really cool. And like, so like my job was to cut out the question marks and then uh, glue in all the hardware so they could put all those electronics in there. But like a lot of people will go to a theme park and they just think of the rides and things like that, but theme parks are making them much more immersive, like you said. Like, yeah. like at Diagon Alley, you can use the wands to interact with things, and like Nintendo Land, the the question marks will do things and make sounds, and they're really, really cool. Like, we were in a warehouse finishing up those things, and in that warehouse, they had the electronics for it, so every once in a while, you would hear... Like you'd hear sounds. the sounds. Yeah, it was really cool <laughs> and funny. Yeah, but, it's 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 really amazing. I mean, I I haven't even gotten a chance to fully as deeply explore all the kind of little things like that they put out at uh, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. Yeah. Uh, yet I only got to visit it a couple of times before everything kind of got locked down. Sadly. Yeah, but, I went I once. Mean, it, you know, I mean, Nintendo Land and the whole the whole new direction that theme parks are going in is. Uh, it's it's taking the immersive inter, you know, experience to just a, a different level, like you say, that goes beyond just just rides now. Yeah, you, yeah it's I used pretty to amazing. just think like, oh, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna stand in line, and we'll ride this whirly gig ride, and then we'll go stand in line and ride the roller coaster, and yeah, now it's 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 an experience. I'm not a big roller coaster guy. I'm getting better, but um, when uh, Hogsmeade opened, I went there on opening day with my ex-wife. And uh, she, I would go through the line with her. And I was always like, because I wasn't really interested in the ride, I was looking at the props and all the different little details. And like, like you said, like how things have changed from just 10 years ago to now. Because at Hogsmeade, there's not really any interactive things for people that are going through the line but now you have so many interactive things for people it's pretty amazing how yeah how quickly everything moved into that you know 
it, it was it was definitely like a, a, a total turnaround shift. You know, I remember we were starting to get right after I think it was after Hogsmeade opened mm-hmm. the, you know, Harry Potter first part of the park before Diagon Alley, you know, like they were already starting to try to make the, the lines more interactive. That's Disney cool. was starting to hire us to build all these interactive elements in the lines, but they still weren't nearly to the level that like things are now, you know, like yeah. with the like you say, the wands and Hogsmeade took that interactivity to a totally personal level. Of yeah. course, there, there's this great, you know, kind of fortunate aspect to the story of Harry Potter that fit perfectly into a theme park. Uh, invi- you know, Diagon that Alley is, is, a, is a place written in the books where you go to that's in the real world, but set apart from it, that you go to shop and dine mm-hmm. and, you know, buy a wand and cast some spells. I mean, like, it's perfect. Uh, and I credit the you know, the creation of Diagon Alley as a theme park experience to making Star Wars Galaxy's Edge what it what it is now. Because they were moving ahead with Star Wars and then Diagon Alley made them cancel oh, wow. Star Wars. Um, I didn't know that. And totally redesigned. Star Wars got pulled to a screeching halt as a theme park experience. Huh. And they said, wait a second, that... They've just upped the game to a new level. And That's cool, though. Star Wars probably would have been pretty neat. It, it probably would have been kind of like Star, Star Tours was. You know, Star Tours, you walk through this cool line. Yeah. There's all kinds of cool, you know, animatronics and storytelling going on. I mean, Star Tours is an amazing ride. And it's, uh, you know, just the queue line alone is is a, a fan, you know, a fan's kind of dream experience. And, you know, in the Star Wars land that they were designing probably would have been cool. But mm-hmm. Diagon Alley changed the game and made Star Wars Galaxy's Edge what it is today. That's really cool. I, I, I contend. That's that's yeah. that's part of my, I mean, because it was shortly after Diagon Alley that Disney, like, put all their plans on a screeching halt and shifted, and, and the whole design just got made into what... Well, it seems like Disney and Universal now. are always going back and forth. You know what I'm saying? Like... Like, yeah, I mean, I mean, there, well, I remember when, when I was a kid, we called it the roller coaster wars. Disney, yeah. Universal, and SeaWorld, and <laughs> Busch Gardens would like keep one upping themselves with the more like amazing, death-defying, thrilling, you know, roller coaster ride. And now, as a prop and scenic artist in the entertainment, you know, in the theme park industry, I'm just, I'm just like doing. I was doing cartwheels that like they're like, oh, now the new competition is who can make the more intricate prop, interactive, you know, immersive experience. That's really cool. How long have you yeah. been doing uh, theme stuff? So, uh, so I started in uh, what was it ninety ninety seven ninety eight oh, okay. nineteen ninety eight uh, working for a props and special effects company, and we did more here in Orlando. Um, huh? Here in Orlando? It, it was. I was getting ready to go. I uh, was. I was still in high school, oh, okay. and I was trying to pick. Uh, this part of why I stayed in Central Florida yeah. was I found uh, a company that hired me as an apprentice. Oh, nice! Uh, and that was that was a kind of interesting kind of journey. <laughs> but uh, basically, I just kind of was so obsessed with doing props and special effects that uh, word got around further and further, and someone said, "Hey, the a dad and my kids, you know, cousins, Cub Scout group or whatever, um, does props and special effects." And I was like, what, how can I meet this person? And I tracked him down and gave him a phone call and met the guy. And he ended up hiring me as an apprentice when I was in high school, uh, when I was like, it was like 17, 18. Oh, that's amazing. And, um, 
it was a really fortunate uh, opportunity. And what happened was that we did a lot of film and television stuff, but we did a lot of theme park stuff because they had a lot of connections to Universal Studios. Okay. The the boss and his second were both uh, very experienced, seasoned props and special effects guys, especially special, more special effects and mechanical effects and things like that. And mm-hmm. had come from New York and California and moved to Florida to kind of start a company and had done a lot of things for Universal Studios over the years, as well as staying in the film industry. So we we did a lot of stuff. My, my early career for Universal Studios, I built a lot of stuff for um, Margaritaville out at uh, City Walk. Mm-hmm. There's all these kind of sculptures of, of uh, animals inside. I did a lot of sculpting on that. We did a lot That's of scenic cool. painting and scenic finishes. We built props for Halloween Horror Nights and for Mardi Gras for Universal for years. And so I did a lot with Universal. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think we did anything. With, we did a few things for Disney. But mostly it was universal because their gotcha. contacts were stronger there. But we were more doing film and television production stuff, um, which meant we were working out at the the studios at Universal a lot as as actual film studios. Oh, that's cool. Um, and then when I uh, went freelance, I worked for a lot of different companies, and I sort of just found that the theme parks, you know, were the, you know. Uh, the main kind of, like you say, uh, the main gig with the scenic yeah. artists here in, in central Florida. Right. So, so I would kind of dance back and forth between film production and, and theme park stuff. So I've been doing that for a long time. Like, you know, just doing stuff for the theme parks almost, you know, almost like 23, 24 years now. That's amazing. And, um, but, uh, but then, you know, uh, really about probably about 15 years ago, I, I, I pretty much, uh, do the theme parks probably about ninety five percent of our work is for the theme parks mm-hmm. for like the last fifteen years and how since long I has, kind of has started round, my company. How long has Roundtable Productions been a thing? Roundtable is fourteen. Oh, nice. I think fourteen years old technically. Um, technically, it's, I started Roundtable sooner mm-hmm. uh, in name and was calling myself Roundtable, but didn't actually start it as a official company until about fourteen. Yeah, 14 years ago. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, 2006, so nice. 14. Um, and you, you're you based in Winter Garden. Yep, 14 Garden. years ago, were you in Winter Garden? No, no. Oh. I, I kind of landed in Winter Garden because I was working for a bunch of different companies when I was freelancing, and there were a couple out here in Winter Garden. Yeah. One was a, a special effects, like a atmospheric effects so smoke fire wind rain company that i was working some freelance jobs for and project managing some things and then there was another company that was a does stuff for the theme parks uh that does carpentry and architectural fabrication and custom fab stuff uh, that i was project managing and doing fabrication for and they were both out here in winter garden and i started to like kind of the area out here and more and more of the scenic companies are on the the west side of Orlando anyways yeah. because of the proximity to the theme park so I I moved out here and just sort of liked it and my uh, my girlfriend and I said hey we want to make this place our home so we got engaged here and then got married here and oh that's cool we, we've got our our workshop where we've got a multiple uh, different warehouses on our property and then we we live really close by and and we've kind of sunk a big old anchor here in Winter Garden and said this is this is hometown uh, now, so that's really uh, cool. 
we didn't start here, but we, we, we've kind of invested ourselves pretty big here. And now that we've got all these warehouses, you know, about two years, two, yeah, a little over two years ago. Now we said, Hey, we want to do something different. You know, I'd worked at so many different shops where organically artists and, and, uh, <clears throat> different people would come and work on projects, mm-hmm. you know, together in a similar space and we'd start renting space together or, you know, doing different projects and, Right. And it kind of happened organically. So my wife and I said, well, let's make this, this is the way we want to work. This is the way we like to do. We like to collaborate with people and, and be just in a creative space where, where other people are working too. And it kind of motivates us, encourages us to do cool things. So we said, we're going to change the, the way we work and, and call our whole entire campus, uh, makers hollow nice. and be this kind of artist professional co-working maker space. That's really cool. And, now we've got all these different people that are renting. I've got a furniture refinisher. I've got a carpenter. I've got a, a pottery sculptor. We've got an arts organization, Creative City, um, rent space to store some of their art exhibits with oh, us great. and build their stuff here. We've got um, different different uh, specialties, a metal fabricator and a rigger. We've got uh, a, Di- a Disney uh, uh, Imagineer, a WDI uh employee rent space to have his own personal workshop in our space <laughs> so and we've That's had different thing. people that have come and gone we've had a big carpentry shop we've had a, a an engine um a machinist that was uh set up shop in our space for a little while um for about a year and then moved into a bigger space we we really like being a place where it facilitates different artists to come in and work on their projects whether it's to have a shop or to come in and work on a project for a couple of months. Um, you know, the nature of our projects is you need someplace really big to build. Right. And then you don't need a big space anymore. So we want to be a place that's flexible. And we've, we've um, hosted quite a number of projects over the years now that where someone needed to work on something for, you know, a couple weeks to a couple months and, and build their thing and, and make it happen. And uh, we really love, you know, being a space for that and kind of creating opportunities for people by having access to space and tools. That's a different approach than most of the um, scenic companies are taking. So I really like that. For sure. Yeah, it's like a co-op type space. That's really cool. It's very much, you know, like akin to a Mm -hmm. co-op. And we're trying to think of like, okay, we have these resources that we've acquired and worked hard for. How do we leverage them to give the maximum benefit, uh, both both for ourselves, but also for our our community, um, you know, our colleagues that are artists and makers and crafters, right? That that need something. You know, there's maker spaces out there that are amazing, and we love them and we support them, and I've been members of them. Uh, the downside of them, a lot of them, is they're nonprofit organizations, which allows them to do things that we can't. Right. But by their nature, they can't have, you know, too much entrepreneurship going there to a certain scale. You know, you can you can work on projects, you can kind of start and incubate your business there. But like once you want to like, you know, make this your full time nine to five, they can't really facilitate that because then you'd be, you know, over utilizing the resources. Gotcha. uh, You know, diminishing access for the whole community. And so like where do you go if you can't afford to, you know, go out and have a, you know, four to 10,000 square foot shop someplace. Right. Uh, there's no place to rent 
you know, 300 square feet and work. You can go rent a storage facility and store your stuff, but you can't work out of it. Yeah. And most workshops you got to, you know, rent are, are thousands of square feet uh, right. to begin. So we wanted to make a space where someone could come in and rent, you know, a couple hundred square feet. But then, you know, you lose access to a lot of things uh, if you went and rented something really small somewhere. So by having it as this kind of co-op, community-focused uh, space, we're able to kind of let people flex and grow, you know. So we've had people that came in and started out with a few hundred square feet and then we're able to say, okay, now I want to, you know, double or triple that. Right. Oh, I need to work on a project for three months and I need a little extra space, you know, and we'll rent them a little extra space. Uh, we've got people that just store their stuff. We've got people that use it as their everyday shop. We got people that use it as their part-time shop and we have people that come and go just working on project by project basis. That's awesome. And in, we were really looking forward to this year being the year that we start doing more workshops and tutorial, you know, hands-on tutorials. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately the nature of, yeah. you know, the, the pandemic is kind of, put that that idea on hold but you know that'll that'll be something that'll be an important part of I think what so. we do and it's uh, cool because like there being so many scenic companies here and a lot of them have a specific like focus that they focus on like yeah like, um they are they all kind of work on similar things like as a whole but like like bungalow did more trade shows than right. big themed jobs, you know, like, yeah. And, and Nassau tends to focus on like the big giant, right. you know, kind of like, you know, castles and mountains and, you know, structure exactly. projects. Um, I, I, I'm technically freelancing whenever something comes up and I can get in there. And I was working for a company called Phoenix rising Phoenix Rising, yeah. yeah, that's uh, that's I share they they we share one of our buildings with Phoenix Rising. Oh, that's we, funny. We joined up together and bought one of the warehouses on the block. Um, <laughs> that's that's hilarious. Uh, where where my shop is, and uh, and so we we we're partnered up together in in certain ways in, in owning uh, one of the buildings. Yeah, and while I was out there, like, like I was hired through Phoenix Rising. Phoenix Rising was hired through this other company that was in like on the East Coast, like I forget what they were called. And then um, while I was out there, I found the paper paperwork from NASA. It's like like so many different companies worked on this one job. Right. You know? It was hilarious. It was yeah, it's just a daisy chain. Yeah. Yeah, and sometimes sometimes we would work on projects where you know. Where Phoenix, you know, like you said, Phoenix Rising would be hired by NASA, would be hired by, you know, Disney, be hired by another, you know. Isn't that funny? And then, and then Phoenix Rising would hire us to build. We would build one element. Phoenix Rising would build something else, and then yeah. that'd be combined together and sent to NASA. NASA would add it into there, and yeah. you know, like it kind of, you know, and while almost I was like there, you know different trades. Before uh, I even started, I had to sit through a a safety meeting with the construction company. So like you had that aspect in it. It was like, yeah, it's so crazy the all the different aspects that go into creating these things. And, um, you know, a lot of people talk about how expensive it is to go and go to a theme park, but there's so many aspects that go into making that theme park and making that experience. So like, like, and the number of people that have, you know, 
brought that whole experience to bear our, our legion at that yeah. point, you know? Yeah. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's an amazing, it's amazing industry when you really think about it. Like, like it's, it really is Orlando's uh, film market <laughs> when you really think about it. Like, for for sure, it's it's a you know it's such a major industry. You know, people think of the theme parks as you know, uh, people outside the industry. I find tend to think of the theme parks as like you say, you buy a ticket and I go and there's the attendant who, you know, opens the gate and there's the, right. the person who like presses the button to start the ride and it's like, man, there is just. A, a, a literal army of of technicians and and staff and designers and artists and craftsmen yeah. and carpenters and concrete layers and electricians right. and uh, and then and then out the line then the whole industry uh, that you know that we're a part of of contractors that are hired to build all of this stuff outside of the parks right. in addition to the huge staff that they have in, internally yeah uh that that goes out and then be, there's people that repair those things you know? yeah like it doesn't stop when you're when the park opens like i had to go out and repair part of cinderella's castle because we built it and that was part of the part of the deal you know so i went out there like walk through the park while it was open. I walked through the park with a bucket full of chemicals and different yeah. things and went up there and fixed it while the park was open. There's like thousands of people taking pictures of the castle while I'm working on it. It was just like, it's, it's a weird job that a lot of people don't think about. It, it, you know? it can be definitely surreal at times. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like installing the Cinderella's castle was done at night and it was like right after, I mean, installing the gate for Cinderella's castle, they rebuilt it because they wanted it to be able, they wanted it more maneuverable. So like bungalow rebuilt it where you could take it apart in sections and it could be stored in a much better way than it, the old one was. And uh, like when they installed it, it was right around Christmas. It was right after Christmas and they were taking the Christmas lights on, down off of the castle. So they had it lit by these giant um uh giant lights. Like yeah. Giant spotlights and it was overcast. And you would you wouldn't see this unless you were doing these jobs, you know. But there was a shadow of Cinderella's castle in the clouds. You know what I mean? Because of right. the It's just it's a really wild and there's like surreal experiences like that all the time in this job. And it's like, not only are we making a really cool experience for people, but we're lucky to experience some of these things that no one else would, you know? Yeah. And then the number of times that you spend like, you know, late nights, it can be tedious at mm -hmm. times, but you're there in a the park and like when there's nobody around yeah. and you know, like, like you say, you're working on the castle it's like, oh, I'm standing on a castle and, you know, <laughs> most most guests have to experience it, you know, shoulder to shoulder, elbow to elbow with, right. you know, thousands and thousands of other guests. And I'm I'm walking around here by myself, like in this kind of quiet, isolated experience. It's and so weird. It's it's kind of it's weird and, and kind of cool. Like you say, it's really kind of uh, a neat experience to be able to, you know, walk around the parks yeah. uh, with nobody there, no, no kind of screaming children and. And, you know, mobs of people standing in line, you get to just kind of walk around and, yeah. uh, 
you know, they look were, at things closer. They were, building, they were finishing up Star Wars when we were when we were working on Incredibles, and it was like right next to each other. Yeah, and like you could see a little bit of it. But one of the coolest parts of that job was most of the stuff was done at night while it was closed, and I got to walk around Toy Story Land after it closed. So like, like it was just cool because like I could go up and look at all these different little props and not be in someone's way or like the last time I went there, there were people sitting on the props. You know what I mean? So you want to be yeah. able to appreciate yeah. it that way when they're open. Yeah, and, you know, the, the, the hundred strollers, they get parked in front of something. Exactly. It's like, I, I spent hours like, you know, yeah. sanding that thing and getting yeah. it to a high, you know, automotive polished finished and you guys yeah. are scuffing your 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 strollers are up against it like it's just a you know any other kind of barricade or something. You know, it's, <laughs> um, it's funny because um, something like that, yeah, it would mess it up. But someone like an artist or or someone like us could come out there and fix it, right? Where right. we did this job for one of Disney's. It was either one of their shops or like a display case at a convention or something and they wanted it to look like veneered wood but they wanted it on aluminum and they wanted us to paint it so it had to look yeah. like it had to look like veneered wood but it was painted and they did that because it was cheaper to have someone come out and touch up the paint than it was to refinish the whole thing and it's like that makes sense that's yeah, th yeah. that's the kind of the kind of decisions where you know we were talking about with the Film props, you don't have to think about like, well, what's the longevity of this? Yeah. And yeah, you could use something like, oh, let's just use this nice thin veneer because it'll look amazing. Right. And but at a theme park environment, like you say, like, oh, that would get destroyed in like a week, and then we'd have to totally re-veneer the whole thing. Exactly. Versus just make a paint paint job, but that looks just as good, but at least it can be touched up. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Um, so our Things have been put on hold, so there's not much going on. But what do you see in the future as far as um, theming goes? As far as themes and well, I know effects? that uh, you know Universal's got the whole new park epic mm -hmm. uh, that is going to take all these lessons that they've learned about interactivity and and it's going to incorporate you know the the Nintendo stuff you were talking about. There's going to be Nintendo Land, so there's going to be. Uh, you know, rehashing, they're going to take, you know, what stuff worked in Japan, duplicate that, and then probably make a few changes and improvements from things that, you know, are working well or break or, or things that are breaking, you know, they can change the design. Right. Um, and, and they're going to take the stuff they learned in Diagon Alley and, and in places like Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. And I think they're just going to keep taking that immersive experience, you know, just up and up and up. Part of it's, you know, the benefit of technology too. You know, sensors and electronics have just gotten better and easier and cheaper and more reliable and, yeah. you know, and allowed things like like the wand experience in Diagon Alley is, is, you know, incredible. You can walk around with your own personalized wand and cast spells and make things happen. And, you know, and you're talking about the, you know, the little uh, touch elements of, mm -hmm. of uh, the, the smash boxes for you know, Mario land. Um, you know, I, I think that the thing that I think 
was the trend is going to have to be reevaluated. Um, oh yeah. You know, because of you know the touch elements until until people feel safer and That's certainly true. companies feel safer having a thousand people a day touch something without it having to be sanitized between each you know interaction is definitely going to you know have an effect on That's the way true, things are yeah. designed because things were becoming more and more touch interactive. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's going to require a you know probably a vaccine or something to be developed to a level that people feel like, okay, we can go back to kind of, uh, you know, more aggressive, you know, touching interactive elements hmm. again. Um, but I, I think, you know, that if that happens, uh, then, then, you know, the, the industry will probably keep progressing in that direction. And I think that with this improved access to technology and, and the cost coming down, I think more interactive experiences are going to be expected of uh, themed environments so that th that'll be something that'll, you know, it started at Disney Universal, but I think you'll see other theme parks and smaller venues start to incorporate those kind of things into their parks as well. I got you. You know, Disney and Universal are pushing, you know, pushing the boundaries. They've got the bigger budgets and the, the kind of expectation of immersive themed environments Whereas something like Bush Gardens or SeaWorld is, you know, they're kind of still, they're half a theme park, half amusement park, yeah. which is, you know, different. You know, it's getting on a roller coaster versus experiencing a whole environment that roller coaster is part of a larger story. Yeah. Um, I think you're going to see more and more of that at, at, at smaller parks and yeah. smaller venues, I think, going around. I mean, uh, escape rooms are a place where you see that, that's you know, true, yeah. exploded everywhere. You know, that's decentralization of, of themed environments, you know, that's instead true. of just Disney and universal. Now you've got, you know, a themed environment in, in every major town in America and in a lot of small ones too, you know? All right, man. Well, it's been a really fun talk and I enjoy everything you're doing and I follow you on, on Instagram and see the fun stuff that you're making. So, well, thanks. I appreciate that. You're welcome. You can, uh, if you can follow my Instagram on, uh, I'm at StefanFX79 on Instagram, yeah. and also I have uh, at Mechanical Oddities. Mechanical is, Oddities. Uh, some of my artwork. Okay. And and Maker's Hollow, um, is uh, is also one that we're 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 starting to post more stuff too to show what kind of things were going on at Maker's Hollow in our in our maker space. Yeah, I didn't realize that Maker's Hollow was a, an actual thing. I thought it, that's just something you put up on that, on that sign because that building is, an interesting building. I've always wondered about that building because it's a it's a unique space with an interesting history. And uh, yeah, that that sign is a marquee from a drive-in movie theater in front of our, our big so barn cool. that we call the train depot because it used to be, right on the railroad tracks when the railroad came through. Um, yeah back when it was all agriculture and we, we put that up there as a little secret Easter egg. The people that, you know, like the people that know that maker, you know, to see the word makers hollow that trigger something in the, in the artist and creative brain and, and makes them curious to come and ask us more. And that way we don't get every single person off the trail, like, you know, coming up and, and talking to us about like, well, what is this place and trying to search it out. But the, the artists and creatives and makers, they, they they see Maker's Hollow up on the sign, and it makes them go. Oh, I That's wonder. So cool. 
I wonder if there's anything interesting going on that applies to what I'm doing. And, and so the, sort of it brings the, it brings the people to us that, that need to find us. That's cool, man. All right. Well, you have a good day. and uh, You too. I look forward to seeing what you guys create and all that. Excellent. I can't wait to see uh, the project you're working on too. So. Thanks, man. Later. All right. Have a good one. This brings to a close our broadcast activity for tonight. Sleep warm.